The University of Oregon's Sports Product Management Master's Program teaches the business of creating sports and outdoor apparel, footwear, and equipment. You'll learn how to innovate, spot business opportunities, pitch ideas, collaborate cross-functionally, measure success, and much more. Network with leaders in the sports and outdoor industry through your instructors, program mentors, guest speakers, and optional internship opportunities at companies such as Adidas, Nike, Columbia Sportswear, On Running, Reebok, Under Armour, Keen, Hydroflask, and more. The program is available as an immersive, on-site, 18-month program for emerging talent based in Portland. Oregon, and an innovative 21-month online program for working professionals. Visit spm.uoregon.edu for more information. One more time, visit spm.uoregon.edu for more information. This is the Work in Sports Podcast. Here's VP of Content and Engage Learning at WorkinSports.com, Brian Clapp. Today is a special day. This is the 500th episode of the Work in Sports podcast. Now, I want to be clear. We're going to go on a little bit of a journey today, but sometimes you get these celebratory episodes and it becomes extremely self-indulgent. Somebody sharing exactly what makes them so special and how they got to 500 episodes or whatever their benchmark may be. I will not do that today. I promise. This isn't about me. This is about the value we have been able to provide you. We wouldn't have 500 episodes if it wasn't for all of your support. So this is truly a give back episode. That said, you can't help but reminisce a little bit, right? I look back with pride at some of our guests. So for example, we had Jesse Cole, owner of the Savannah Bananas, on this show before he had an ESPN show and was featured on CNN, MSNBC, and every major news outlet. We had Ishveen Jolly, CEO of Open Sponsorship, on our show twice before Serena Williams invested millions in her company. We had Melanie Newman on before she became the first woman to call play-by-play for the Baltimore Orioles and teamed with Jessica Mendoza to form the first all-female broadcast team to call a nationally televised Major League Baseball game on ESPN. I try really hard on this show to have a forward-looking lens when we book guests. We ask ourselves as a team, where is this industry going and what opportunities does that present to you, the listener? And can we get a guest from that world, bring them in here and have these conversations because these are the people that are growing our industry. Now, let's not get crazy. If a two-time executive of the year in Major League Baseball like Dan Duquette wants to come on the show, sure, come on, Dan, let's talk. But for the most part, we're trying to do a forward-looking lens on the industry, looking towards those trends that are opening the doors for all of you. Our goal from day one has been simple, provide real insight into the sports industry and actionable advice to make it a reality for you. Today, we're going to share some of the incredible perspectives and career advice that has been shared on this show from a multitude of guests over the years. Before we kick things off with Michelle Andres, who is the Senior VP of Baltimore Ravens Media, and Celia Busa, Senior Director of ESPN's Early Career Program, I want to do two special shout-outs, which may break my self-indulgent rule, but deal with it, okay? First, I want to shout-out John Meller, our former CEO who passed away last summer from cancer. John believed in this show and how he could help people. That was always our shared vision. Just help people. The business and everything else will flow after that. If we set out to help people on their journey, 
everything else will work in, in perfectly. And he's always been right. So thank you, John. The second shout out, Carl Manto, the VP of ticket sales at the Minnesota Timberwolves. Carl was my first guest. He took the leap and said yes when I asked him to come on this show. If he had turned me down in those early moments, I may never have had the momentum it took to take this show as far as it has gone. But he said yes. We had a great conversation and all of you started to listen. And we built that momentum and that velocity to push us forward to where we are right now, 500 episodes deep. So thank you, Carl, for taking the leap with me. All right, now let's get back to the good stuff. Starting off with some much-needed perspective from Michelle Andres, followed up by Celia Busa. Generally speaking, where would somebody kind of break in with an organization like yours? As an intern, I would say probably 20 out of 25 of my staff members were in my interns first. I love that. So it's, it's internships. But the key with an internship, and we only take graduates, because they're year-long, full-time, paid positions. Mm -hmm. They are a member of our team that we desperately need the help of. But I will tell you, after having been in sports for so many years, I get too many cover letters that say, I'm a huge football fan. I'm a huge Ravens fan. I'll work anywhere. And it's like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to hire that. I want your skill. It's great that you're a football fan, but you got to bring a skill. And you got to tell me what's your focus. Are you in communications? Are you in social? Are you a camera person? I'm not just going to hire you randomly and say, oh, I'll put you here. You've got to bring the skill set. And, and so don't send me a cover letter that says, I'm a huge Ravens fan, Ravens fan and I'll work in any department. No, I was like, no, tell me what you can bring and how you're going to help me. That is the best advice. Everybody in our audience needs to be listening to that so clearly. I've said it before. I'm so glad to hear you echo it. I think that <laughs> is the most valuable advice we're not hiring fans. Fans are distracted. Fans don't have a distinct purpose. Fans are looking around at everything going on. No way. You've got to have a skill set you bring to the table. That's what's going to make you stand out. You don't necessarily have to be a sports management person, but yeah. you've got to bring that skill set. It always talks about working hard, being diligent, showing results. But how important is it to identify what you want and communicate that? So it's, it's very important. And it was very hard for me. Um, when I first got here, I thought that if I just put my head down and I worked really hard, like everyone, right? Like I, I would eventually move my way up the ladder. And I realized in a company with thousands of employees, it's really hard to do that. And I fortunately had a mentor of mine pull me aside, um, a CP, and he said to me, you know, it's not enough to just put your head down and work hard. You have to tell people what you want to do. And it's funny because I told him, I was like, okay, well, I really want to work on OTL. And he was like, okay, that's great. But, you know, you should also think about working on the NFL. And at the time, it never even occurred to me to work on the NFL. And, and getting on the NFL project changed the trajectory of my career. So, you know, I use that always as an example of when I tell people, um, tell PA specifically when they walk in the door here that you have to communicate because no one is mind readers, right? And the more that you can tell people what you want to do and what you want your career to look like, as well as demonstrating capabilities on a regular basis, people will think of you when opportunities come up because the best position you can be in is Someone knows what you want to do. Someone knows how good you are at the job that you're doing and an opportunity is available and they can think of you for that opportunity before it's even posted. Because a lot of times 
not for entry level programs like ours, but for other positions, by the time they're posted, they already have two, three, four people in mind because these other people have networked and built relationships and met people and told people what they wanted to do. So I encourage everyone in the industry, right? Not just the folks who walk in the door here to voice what it is that you want, you want to do and who you want to be down the line so that people can help you get there. Two amazing points there. Don't rely on being a fan. That's not good enough. That's not a differentiator. And be able to advocate for yourself. You will never get the job you want if no one knows you want it. One of the sports jobs I hear come up in just about every so tell me what you want to do conversation is social media. A lot of people want to work in social media. Every team, league, and organization has a social media team. You know the social media team, the cool kids with every tool, technique, and quippy line at the ready. Well, time for a reality break. Working in social is much more than cool tools, techniques, and quippy lines. Creativity is a big part of success for sure, but there are many more layers that lead to real success in this field. Here's James Price, newly crowned director of social media for the Oklahoma City Thunder. What are you trying to get across to young people who want to work in the sports industry? What do you what do you really value getting out there? What I'm talking about marketing, when I'm talking about sports marketing we're talking about social advertising like i want them to understand that like if you want one of these roles you need to showcase your work and your creative thinking i always i always tell people like it doesn't matter if you're a chief marketing officer or you know your entry level like if you have the belief and the passion that that you can showcase your creative thinking you can do some of the same work that a cmo does now of course there's, there's work that goes into that but I always I try to empower them to really believe that because it can be very easy to think, oh, I'm a student, you know, I can only do X, Y, Z, or you know, these are these are the roles I I should be thinking about, or this is another one. People are like, oh, I'm not creative, and it's like, no, we all are creative. You just have to work that muscle. Like you have to creative writing is not easy. Like it's hard. Like writing for social is hard. Like people always have feedback. People always have something to say. Like. I want people to like really understand like you can be just as cre- creative and successful as me. Now you got to put a lot of work in because I put a lot of work yeah, into this. Yeah. Like I put in, I put in a lot of time doing part-time jobs. I did put in a lot of time doing volunteer work, but you can get to the same spot I am if you put in that work too. You may not want to believe this, but over 50% of the jobs in the sports industry are connected to sales. Ticket sales, premium suite sales, partnerships, sponsorships, merchandise. Sales brings in the money that leads to fancy new facilities, free agents, top-of-the-line coaches, new office space, staples, and pencils. Literally everything. I have never worked in sales, so I'm not here to tell you it is a mandate. But if you want to find opportunities with a high ceiling, it should be considered. Sam Fisher is a stadium experience manager for the Tennessee Titans. But guess how she got this awesome job? That's right, sales knowledge. How important is that concept of staying flexible in your career path and knowing that, you know, this might be my ultimate goal over here, but this is where my opportunity is right now, so I'm going to go attack it. When I was interning for the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, um, I also babysat a little bit on the side, you know, as an intern, and Mm -hmm. I babysat for our general manager, who at the time was um, Andy Milovich. And um, one of the nights, like before I was, you know, getting ready to leave, he was like, Sam, you know, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? And he was like, well, if I could give you any piece of advice, he was like, I would learn sales. He was like, 
Maybe sales isn't one you want to do for the rest of your life, but you will sell for the rest of your life in some capacity. You know, you might be selling tickets, you might be selling yourself for a role, you might be selling a role to someone you're interviewing. Like, sales will stay with you forever, especially if you stay in this industry. So that you know, that's my advice. Great advice. So after the Red Sox internship, I said, all right, I, I want to get the sales experience I hear about. Yeah. Um, and I, I sold a little some tickets for Coastal Carolina's football office. So I had a little bit of experience on the phone, but mostly it was like, here's a list of people to call. So mm-hmm. this was the first time I was diving into, you know, finding my own leads, prospecting, and just picking up the phone and hammering out, you know, calls every single day. And um, it was hands down the best decision I've ever made. It really shaped what I do and how I do it um, still to this day. So I loved it. But I mean, I hate saying it's an easy way to get your foot in the door because sales isn't easy. Definitely not easy. But yeah, I get it. It's not an easy way to get your foot in the door, but there are a lot of sales jobs. So that's why people say that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a great kind of like what Andy told me. It's just a great skill set to learn because you're going to use it for the rest of your life. So I certainly always encourage people to to try it out. Um, but back to I guess the original point of your question is how important is it to be flexible? Had I not you know gotten sales experience, I I truly don't think I'd be where I am now. So I think being able to step outside the box and try something new is, is really important, especially in this industry. Are you feeling the vibe yet? This is top of the line career advice and info from the people out there doing it. I've only had a few guests that have asked to come back a second time. Ishveen Jolly is one of them. I first met Ishveen when she was only a year or two into launching Open Sponsorship, a wonderful marketplace for athletes and brands to connect. I love the idea, and I really like the idea of highlighting a female CEO making waves in the sports industry. Once NIL launched, I knew this was huge for her marketplace. It opened it up beyond just pro athletes and she could start to build a marketplace for college athletes. So I asked her to come back on and she couldn't have been more gracious. I've found over the years that I have a soft spot for entrepreneurs. I love that they can take an idea and turn it into a reality. That is a special skill. So for all of you with an entrepreneurial spirit, these next three guest segments are the pinnacle. First, you'll hear from Ishveen, then Zach Maritas, CEO of Teamworks, and Jesse Cole, owner of the Savannah Bananas, three of the brightest and most impressive entrepreneurs I know in the sports industry. What are your biggest takeaways? What were those big aha moments like, oh my gosh, this is what this world is like? You know, as you look back, what do you think? I'm thinking about all those moments where I'm like, ah, oh, I didn't think about that one. So I'd say yeah. B2B is not as logical as B2C. That was a very early realization where when you do a B2C product, you mostly, you think with your wallet, you think with like your time, your watch, right? Like you're like, if it makes my life easier, quicker, more efficient or cheaper, I'm in. B2B, you're like, yeah, but my friend runs the agency downstairs. So like, I want to work with him. Or like, oh, but I get tickets from that agent. There's a lot of like relationship. There's a lot of other things. Like it's not really your wallet. It's someone else's wallet. So it's interesting. So I think when we've launched Open Sponsorship, I like pitched up to speak to some Olympic Federation. And I was like, this is the best thing ever. And they were like, yeah, but why would we want to put money in the hands of the athletes? That's money that comes to us. And I was like, okay, this is not logical. Move on from this. So that was a big realization. And then I think the journey from entrepreneur to CEO was definitely something I hadn't really thought about. Like 
I didn't really think about reading management books before my first hire. You know, you make your first hire, you just make them. You don't think, are they senior, junior? Like now, for example, we are mostly remote. But now that we're hiring more and we're hiring junior, we're thinking about not being remote anymore because junior team members are very hard to manage and to motivate when they're remote. So I think there's like so much coming into the management side of running the business that, you know, early on, I was just thinking about the problem and the solution, problem, solution. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that, but I, I love working with product. I mean, I just love that like people will say like, oh, can you do this? I'm like, yeah, of course. Of course we can. We can build that. And I, I think like, I think I take it for granted sometimes that you, you talking about it makes me realize like working with technology and product, A means how scalable you are, but B, it's just, um, it's just amazing to solve problems using technology and then everyone can use it. So as a young student athlete with an idea and getting out there into the marketplace, did you find that it was difficult to get to people to take you seriously or did the product speak for itself? I guess not answering the question you asked, I think I was too timid. I don't think I was aggressive enough. I wish I'd have been more bold. I think, you know, when I finally, when it finally clicked that it's like, I need to be more bold, I need to be more aggressive. What I found was you have this magical time period. And I think it's, you know, pretty much up until you turn 30, where everybody views you as this like clever little kid that's got a great idea and they want to help you. You're just a kid. Anyone will help you. You can you can reach out to the commissioner of some, you know, big time organization and they'll give you 10 minutes because they love what you're doing. But it's like the minute you turn 30, you're just another guy hawking a product, right? <laughs> and, and you get stiff armed. And so my advice, my advice is to young entrepreneurs is like take advantage of being a quote unquote kid in people's eyes because they will help you try and endear yourself to them like at you know if i can get some cranky old football coach to think of me like one of his players i've got a chance to show them my product and if i can show them my product i know that they're going to fall in love with it so it's like how do i get the meeting so i used to be like yeah i want to be taken seriously or i want to appear older and it's like no, like take advantage of that because people want to help you. And and I think if you're really smart, you learn to play on it. You know, it's the old, if you want advice, ask for money. If you want money, ask for advice. Like I learned instead of saying, hey coach, can I sell you this product? Hey coach, you know, you're really smart. You've been in the industry for a long time. I'm just this kid who's working on it. Could I get 20 minutes of your time to look at this and give me some feedback? And by the yeah. end of the 20 minutes, they'd be like, well, I think this is great. And oh, by the way, like, could we use it? Could we have it? Well, gosh, coach, I didn't. Of Gee. course. You know, yeah. Gee whiz. I guess we could sell it to you. You know, so I, I think it's um, it's all, it's one of those things that's kind of counterintuitive. But when, when you're young, you, you know, I think you feel like you want to be taken seriously or I want to be perceived as an adult. It's like, no, take advantage of the way you're perceived right now because you're going to get more. People are going to be more willing to help you and when they feel like you're you're just beginning. When you're hiring or trying to build out the Teamworks brand and staff and culture, what is it you seek out? What is it that stands out to you when you're talking to people? You know, number one, I think we're, we're looking for people that are competitive. You know, I want people that care about the score, that want to win. You know, we're looking for people that are premium, that are high functioning. Um, you know, doesn't necessarily need mean we need everybody we hire needs to have you know, been working in industry for 20 years, but we, we need to see that they have a really high ceiling to achieve. You know, that there's a lot that they can bring. Are they going to make the organization better? Are they going to push the team around them? I think, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about is how do we make each hire better than the last? How are we constantly raising the bar with each hire? Um, Humility is a big one for our organization. 
you know, and it's, it, you know, it can be, you know, when I say humility and we talk about people that are competitive, that are high functioning, we're looking for people that are confident, not arrogant. And I think there's, that's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. You know, people that are confident, they've done the work. They know they're going to win because they've done the work. People that are arrogant just think they're supposed to win. Right. I think another one that we look for is strong attention to detail, right? Folks that see nuance, um, folks that are bothered when details are out of place. Um, you know, an old interview tactic could leave a piece of paper on the floor where they're going to sit in the waiting room and see if they pick up the piece of paper. Does it bother them that there's a scrap of paper sitting in front of them? Like, are they going to, you know, they can't wait. They're not going to leave it for somebody else to take care of. They got to pick that thing up and throw it out. I think at the stage that we're at, um, and really any stage of a startup, but particularly where we're at, we're looking for folks that are obviously problem solvers, but really system builders. So not just folks that are, you know, they might pick up that piece of paper, but then they might say, well, how is it that that piece of paper got left here? And do we need to have a vacuuming schedule that happens every day? And who's going to carry that out so that we never have a piece of paper sitting in the lobby when somebody's waiting to interview again? And then I think the last one is just a bias towards action. We want people that, again, same thing, like they, they see a problem and they want to attack it. I mean, it's the question you asked me earlier, you know, why did I feel that I could solve the problem? I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I meditated on it so much as it was like, there's a problem here. We got to fucking get after it. Let's go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you always kind of been that way where you've always kind of seen a problem and said, I can beat this? You know, it's a lot more fun. You know, you think about it, I tell everyone, what's your story? So when you ask anybody, do they have a good story to tell? And a great story to tell isn't coming into somewhere where it's really successful and making it a little better. The great stories, the ones that everyone tell over and over again, when you come in with something and it's unbelievable adversity, unbelievable challenges, and you overcome them. So yes, we always look for that. And it's more fun. And you know, how do you build a great and amazing culture? You tell stories and you have stories to tell. And our whole staff in, you know, two years in Savannah going into our third year, we've had zero turnover because we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves. And yep. that and that story, which is a long story and how we've got to the success, that's what's really built this. So what is 100%. your kind of approach to hiring? How do you find those right people? 100%. I'll tell you that number one thing for us that I've seen, and we get hundreds of applicants, and we are one of the few teams that are constantly hiring. I mean, we now have 14 full-time. We're hiring three more full-time right now. I mean, we're going to be 2025 soon within the next year or two, just with our Savannah franchise. Here's the one thing, and I tell everyone this, persistence. If someone shows me persistence in trying to get a job and responsiveness, that shows a lot. And I'll give you three examples quickly. We had this person, Reginald, who um, disability special. Um, and basically what he did, he called every week trying to get a game day staff position with us. Called every single week. And he's like, when's the job fair? When's the job fair? Yeah. And, we, and we answered. And he came to work. And he became our most beloved game day staff member. Literally, he picked up trash around the stadium and exit greeted fans. Amazing. Another person, uh, Mark Edis Shark, literally, he was our announcer. He started reaching out to us in October before the seasoning started. And every couple weeks, here's what I'm going to do. What that shows is unbelievable. Um, caring, you know, you care so much. You have this drive to be successful and you want to work for someone. Mm-hmm. So many people shoot out a resume and just hope they'll hear back. 
I want you to reach out over and over and over and over again. That shows you're passionate. That shows you want to be for want to work for us. And that shows once you get the job, you're going to continue that passion and persistence. So, you know, those two. And then Danny, who worked so hard to get a job for us full time, what did he turn out to be? Our best salesperson I've ever seen. What he did this past year is he raised over $100,000 for local nonprofits through our fundraising program. That is amazing. Yeah, he single-handedly is one of the reasons why we saw it almost every game because of his effort and his leading of the ticket sales department. So, you know, that's the thing that I look for. And then, you know, stand out. So everyone, they send a resume. You know, who cares? What we look for is we ask for future resumes. So that's us showing how we're different. We want to see what you're going to do in the future, not what you did in the past. And we ask for a video cover letter. Okay. The reality is everything we're doing is movies now. I don't want to just see something on a paper. I want to see you come to life. I want to see your energy, your personality, how fun you are. So send a video cover letter. What happens is we get about 300 applicants, say, for a position. We, then we write back to the ones we like. Yeah. And we ask for that video cover letter and the future resume. And I bet you right there we get only 10% of those because yep. it's more work. And if people can't put the work in to potentially try to get a job with you, they're not going to be great when they, they join. Sometimes you just hit it off with someone immediately. Now, I have had many interviews that were duds. I'll admit it. Sometimes my questions sucked. Sometimes they weren't in the right mood. Sometimes the tech made it hard for us to hear each other and get into a free-flowing conversation. But this next snippet from Femi Abebefe from Vsin. There was definitely some man crushing going on. Well, for me, I mean, I can't speak for Femi, but I felt the magic going on between us, and I hope he feels the same way. You know, when somebody doesn't try to sugarcoat anything, that they're pretty comfortable in the environment, and Femi brought some fire when we talked about our early careers. And I followed up in there too, because it can be pretty rough going at the beginning, and we like to be as transparent and honest as possible on this show. But Femi, and you'll hear from this clip, got through all that and has found his perfect career fit now. You've followed a common career path for young people that want to work in the in this side of the industry is starting out in a small market and working your way up. Not only do I get to kind of cut my teeth and figure out my voice and figure out where I can improve and make mistakes in an area where the stakes aren't as high, you know, because yeah. that's a thing, you know, it's like you got to be able to go out and cut your teeth and realize what you're good at, what you're not good at, and just kind of experience things because it's one of those old adages that somebody can teach you how to do something, but until you actually do it and get hands on with it, that's when you really start to learn and can really improve because the best teacher is experience, yep. you know? So that I think was a really valuable experience because a lot of people kind of scoff at, oh, damn, I got to work in some small market where I don't know anybody. Yep. I'm away from my family. I'm making shekels <laughs> at best, you know? I mean, like my first job, I'll say it right now, is $24,000 a year yep. uh, was my first job. I'm like, damn, I went to school and I'm making less than people at fast food joints, mm-hmm. you know? Like, what was the point of this? I know. But it's like, you, you, you got to kind of have your... Your eye on the prize is kind of what I talked to myself. I was like, you know what? This is just the starting ground. Yep. And I kind of attributed it to to Major League Baseball. I was like, you know what? Guys get drafted. You're they're in the, in the farm system. They're in the minors. Yep. You're in the single A. You're in double A. You're not making much money. And if you can outlast all of this and eventually get to the big leagues, that's when the lucrative money comes into play here. Yeah. So that's kind of what I always told myself to at least get through some of those days. Because, yeah, there were days where I was like, well, at least one check is going to go to rent and the other check goes to whatever else happens this month. Gosh, <laughs> I, had the, I had the same and, thing starting out. Like it was like every month I was going backwards. I, my expenses were yes. more than my income. And it's it's yep. not easy. No, it, it's, it's not easy. And luckily I had parents that if things really got down to it, they could help me if I needed yeah. to. 
Um, I tried not to rely on them too much because like you guys already helped put me through college and all that. So I don't want to be like, hey, I need some money to, yeah. for groceries and all that. I tried to, you know, just you got to make some lifestyle adjustments until you can actually live the lifestyle that you want to live. Ketchup with sandwiches. a decent amount of money. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm kidding. I'm not trying to scare everybody. But there is some there is some reality here <laughs> that we have to be bit. honest about. It can be yeah, a grind, especially honest. that first year. That first year can be really tough. But And we're just being honest. It can definitely be a yeah. grind. But that stuff aside, I think just the experience and one of the cool things that my news director did in Bend was that he allowed us to do more stuff and he allowed us to try a little bit of everything. It almost felt like an internship at times, not just from the pay, but just from yeah. <laughs> us being able to actually try to do different types of things. Like I did everything at that station other than weather. I produced a newscast. Yeah. I anchored a newscast. I reported. I was also a sports reporter. I was a photog at one point. Like, mm-hmm. not, not as, my, as my job, but I've just been a photographer just to like, hey, go out there and shoot yeah. this. Because, yeah, part of it, what we got to do when it's not as many people on the staff. So I got to try literally everything. And I think it's one of the reasons why I think I'm really empathetic in my current job and in other jobs in the past of what everybody's role is. Because for the most part, I've done everyone's role. I know what that person is going through. Oftentimes, I think you see... Uh, some on-air people are like, oh, what the hell are the producers really even doing? Or what the hell are the photogs even doing? Or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, why isn't this? It's like they also have things in their job as well that you might not be aware of. So I think being able to try different things gives you just a little bit of a peek of what that person might be going through. And it just makes you a more well-rounded person on the staff versus having the constant fights of on-air people versus production people, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was it was really cool in that regard to get those experiences, which I think makes me a valuable person uh, in my current job and in my jobs in the past working in Spokane and Seattle. Was sports betting something you wanted to transition towards, something you had an interest in? It was always something that I wanted to transition into. So I was like, all right, if states can now legalize sports betting, this is going to become Huge. a thing, not just for people betting, but in terms of a content standpoint as well. I almost likened it similar to fantasy football and yes. fantasy sports to where I was like, that really took off and became a thing. And there's so many content jobs because of fantasy sports. 100%. Sports betting is going to kind of be in a similar fashion. And I felt that I could get a leg up on other broadcast journalists because like we've said a couple of times on the podcast already, sports is very competitive. There are only yeah. so many jobs in the traditional broadcast sense and everybody who was doing what I wanted to do wanted to work at ESPN or Fox Sports 1 or wanted to work at NBC or CBS or whatever. So if everyone is gunning for that job, I figured how can I differentiate myself from other people who have similar backgrounds as I do? So I was like, I don't think there's many people with my background who really know sports betting well. So I was like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to like learn, read, listen, and even start to write my own stuff to try to learn this stuff. And that can give me a leg up. I am terrible at sports betting, literally awful, which is why I don't do any of it. But I sure recognize the opportunity. What I am good at is asking questions. 500 episodes, 250 of which are guest interviews. And I write up between 10 to 15 custom questions for each one. That's about 3,000 researched and articulated questions during this show. Oh my gosh, that kind of blows my mind. Now, here's the deal. Behind the scenes, most of this time I'm in the luxury of my basement with the benefit of an incredible editor to clean up all of my mistakes. Thank you, Kevin. Or other random noises I may make while recording. So, (laughs) really thank you, Kevin. 
In this next clip, I had the pleasure of interviewing Javier Gutierrez, president and CEO of the Arizona Coyotes, but it was live on stage at the Hashtag Sports Conference this summer. There is no safety net, which freaks you out a little bit. But you know what settles my nerves? The seriousness of the topic. Diversity in the sports industry. In this first clip, you'll hear from Javier and I on stage, but then right after that, Dr. Christopher Brown, Senior Associate Athletic Director for DE&I at my alma mater, the University of Delaware. And you are Latino and one of the first, to the first president and CEO in one of the four major sports leagues. How do you make sure to elevate those voices into decision-making roles? What's yeah. your approach? So the three pillars of our business plan are impact, which uh, I'll say that probably another hundred times. Please do. Times. Uh, I think it's uh, great. It's impact inclusion and innovation. And inclusion is both bringing diverse voices to the seat of decision-making, as well as truly including every community, every cohort, every aspect of the, the place in which you reside. Um, and then finally, innovative uh, innovation really isn't just technology, right? I grew up in Silicon Valley and everybody says, oh, it's, innovation is technology. It's not, it, technology is a tool for you to think differently, for you to approach problems differently. To your specific question, it's absolutely critical to have diverse voices at the seat of decision making. One, representation matters. If I am sitting here saying, I need to expand my fan base, right? I'm gonna super serve our fans, but I'm gonna also super serve our fans in waiting, which I talk a lot about. The reality is Maricopa County, which is the largest county in Arizona, it's 43% Latino. Yeah. If I don't have Latinos, you know, engage with my organization, that's my problem, right? And so how do I do that? I bring diverse voices to the seat of decision-making that will give us those perspectives, right? That will give us that pathway of saying, this will resonate, this will not resonate. Right. And that's not just to say that your identification is the sole reason why you're sitting there but it is a key component to the diversity of voices that make better decision-making as a business enterprise. I always talk about this. We start as a business enterprise to create sustainability, to create vitality, to create a thriving business enterprise that will be here and be able to do the things that we can do to make an impact. And a key component of that is bringing diverse voices and diverse talent into that. And sometimes it can be from outside of sports yeah. as, a, as a pathway to do that. How important is it to get the players to be a part of the community, to get them out there, to be seen, to be visible, yeah. and, and build up a sense of pride throughout the community rather than just being somebody who shows up and plays a game and that's it? We want partners. We want content creators. We want people who have these innovative ideas to come to us that highlight these incredible human beings who have had just these life-altering stories that I think would be great to get out into the world, that I think would be great for young people, for corporate partners, for communities to hear and to become, you know, attached and engaged with. And I think that's the transformation that you're seeing happening in hockey is they're there, they're great individuals, they have great stories. It's up to us now to make sure that those, you know, those stories get out. Can change really happen if it doesn't start there with those with the power to make decisions? I think your question's a good one in that I, I think you can have change without that top-down leadership, 
But that change is going to be very slow and it's not going to be as consistent as it could be. You know, what sticks out to me about that report, aside from there being a lack of diversity within athletics director's position is if you look at the presidencies, there's a lack of diversity in that space as well. And so, yep. you know, it. I can't say that it's causation, but we can at least say that it's correlation for yep. sure. And so yep. making sure that we have individuals at the highest level who are sitting at the president's seat, who are also, and this is an element that we don't talk about a lot within the college athletic spaces, within the board of trustees. These yeah. different groups were in charge of making sure the fluid operation of, an af- of a university and who hired the president who are bringing in these highest positions and having to approve them, we also need their buy-in as well. And so without that, it's really difficult to make that substantial change. Now, with that said, if we, for example, if one of your listeners at a university or is in a setting where, hey, this isn't a priority for our leadership, there are lots of examples where there have been grassroots efforts to make changes. We think about DEI and it's probably most fundamental place where we had really a fight for civil rights within our country, this wasn't the government making these substantial changes. These were regular individuals who had a vision and who saw things as not necessarily they were, but as they could be fighting to make sure that that happens. And so for those individuals who are at universities that it's, hey, the leadership isn't showing me this change, you can be the change yourself. Know that it's going to be frustrating because you won't have that ease of, okay, I'll just write a new policy and that'll change things. But that doesn't mean that you can't be effective. When I first broke into the industry, right after my fighting blue hens experience, like Dr. Christopher Brown, we just heard from, there were writers and there were TV personalities, two separate worlds. But my first job was at CNN Sports Illustrated, where we literally tried to co-mingle these two worlds. World-class sports writers meshed with world-class TV production and reporting. It was a blast. We had some of my idols on, like Lee Montville and Frank DeFord, Tom Verducci and Peter King. The media world was changing, but eh, we got shut down after about seven years, which was kind of a bummer. The blueprint was there, though, and it still exists today. If you want to work as a writer, you better work on camera, too, on those skills. No one knows this better than NFL insider Jason LaConfora. Now that you've been doing it for, what, 15 years, you've been on camera. Something like that. Are there any pieces of advice that you'd share that maybe have been shared to you by Rich Eisen or Fran Charles or any of those people that you think could be valuable to somebody getting started? I mean, it sounds cliche, but it's maybe counterintuitive to the question you just asked, was a, which was about feedback. But I, I would just say that that's a business where it's very easy to sort of lose who you are or what you think your identity is or sort of what makes you you and what got you there. So there's kind of a line between like, hey, we don't think that color looks great on you or, hey, you know, what would you think about this or that? Like, you know, certain that stuff, like you're you're in the medium, like it's a visual thing. You're going to have to roll with the punches with some of that stuff. But like, don't let somebody who doesn't really know you but thinks they really, really know TV try to like change your being or change what feels right to you or doesn't feel right to you on camera or, you know, oh, we need you to just be bigger. No, that's not like there's a certain point where you have to look at yourself and be like, well, okay, like I I get why that person might want me to be that way and sort of to be that over the top or sort of get to a point where I feel like I'm playing a character, but that character is not me. How important is it 
for anybody that's serious to still focus on the proper fundamentals, the ethics, the techniques, like the real craft of journalism. I think it depends on what you want to do. Like, like I see what's going on in, in sort of the, the, the gambling content space. And like, there's some young people who I know, like people who, you know, we have come on my radio show. They do a couple of hits. And the next thing I know, like two, two months later, they've, They've signed with Wasserman to like a, you know what I mean? And they've got major representation it's and now they're crazy. on all these platforms. Like, so would I lecture them and say, well, geez, I don't know about your journalism chops. I mean, yeah. if you're pretty good at picking games and you have, you know what I mean? You come off well on yep. camera and you make a TikTok video or two that go viral. And now you have opportunities to make life-changing money. Like, am I going to say, well, boy, I think, you know, in that first segment, you could have, you know, done a better job synthesizing uh, how you spoke about that particular game. And yeah. you probably could have done that in 20 seconds rather than a minute. It's working. You know what I mean? Like, I think they know more about what works in that regard than I could even pretend to know. Final segment. Have you been taking notes? I sure hope you have been because there's a lot of dense information in here from people in the industry. They were trying to figure out how to break in. Now they're there. And they're sharing back with you what they have learned and advice that can make a huge difference for you. And that's the actionable advice we're trying to provide. I go out and I speak in about 30 college campuses each year focused on this kind of knowledge. I want to provide as much actionable advice as I can to young people in sports management programs trying to break into this industry. Matter of fact, I hope some of you listening have heard me present and are in our sports career game plan program. We're trying to help you compete in this competitive industry. We're trying to give you a leg up. And I hope you're taking all of that advice and knowledge and putting it into action. I will give you a little bit of behind the scenes info. Every one of these sessions, I like to leave 15, 20 minutes at the end for questions from the audience. You know, students, I want to hear from students. What do they want to know? What do we need to lean into more? What do we need more teaching on? You know, whether it's about networking or interviewing or any of those techniques. 90% of the time, one of the questions that will come in from the audience is about becoming a sports agent. That is the marquee. That is the dream. When I was first coming up in the industry, everybody wanted to be an ESPN anchor. Now it's, I want to be a sports agent. I get it. High profile, big upside. Not easy though. Well, friends, we're going to finish off on a high note. We're going to bring in two of the best and brightest sports agents in the world. Lee Steinberg, who represents football players like Patrick Mahomes and Tua Tagovailoa, and Nicole Lynn, president of football operations at Clutch Sports, who represents guys like Jalen Hurts, Quinnen Williams, and Bailey Zappi. Yes, I'm a Patriots fan, so I had to throw that in there. But either way, these are two of the best, and they're sharing some great advice on becoming a sports agent. You're always competing. Is that innate competitiveness a vital skill for success in sports careers, do you think? Well, I think so, but it doesn't have to be related to competing against other people. It can be competing against yourself. So the way I look at it is if I've given the best presentation in either meeting a new client or negotiating a, a contract, if, if I've hit the correct standard, then will be productive. In other words, I would never talk about other people or or trash them or do any of this. But being involved in sports in some capacity is probably the number one career choice of uh, many, many younger people across the country. And it's a highly competitive field. So it 
involves being able to somehow distinguish oneself from the mass to create a brand. And it's absolutely clear that there are a finite amount of spots, whether you work for a team or a league or a conference or an athletic department, whether you work in sports marketing, sports PR, sports television, facilities management, any aspect of it, it is all highly competitive. And that's why I think there's a real key in not resorting to situational ethics. So in situational ethics, someone is a nice neighbor, kind to cats and dogs, <laughs> and then goes out into the workplace and uses heinous social Darwin tactics because the end, after all, justifies the means. Right. But it really doesn't. And you are how you work. So maintaining a strong set of uh, values and ethics um, and understanding that other people have feelings too and other people have the legitimate right to want what you want is uh, something that you always need to keep in mind. Where does that inner confidence develop from? Or is that just something you've always had? So I have consistently worked in industries dominated by men. Before becoming a sports agent, I worked on Wall Street in New York City, which is mostly men, mostly white men. Um, I'm also a full-time attorney on top of being a sports agent, which again, is dominated by men. When you are one woman in a room full of men, sometimes you can be meek and sit back, or on the other hand, be outgoing, step up to the plate, and kind of take control of the room. And that's the route that I choose. And so as being an agent, for example, when I walk into the combine, you know, I am one of very few women. And I know that if I, you know, choose to be reserved and just kind of not speak to anyone, people are gonna notice me. People are gonna take me serious. And so it's like, I have to go above and beyond and um, my confidence level and just my authoritativeness, my assertiveness, um, more than that men do. And so it's something that I just naturally have had because I've always worked in these male-dominated industries. Is that kind of yeah. the way you view it as an, as an agent too? That extra drive is really necessary to succeed? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because there are so many agents. You know, we're talking about 900 people fighting for, you know, a couple hundred NFL players. And, you know, there's a statistic that says that 90% of NFL players are signed with 10% of agents, meaning there are a group of agents that kind of monopolize the NFL. So even that you hear the word 900, there's this kind of group that have just always done it. You know, they've got 60, 70, 80 clients, certain agents do. And so when looking at that, I mean, it, it tells you like when you come into this business as a junior agent or, you know, someone that's different, nothing is going to be handed to you. And so you've got to find a way. And I've, I've had to do this my entire career in setting yourself apart. There's got to be something different. Like, why me? Why not sign with, you know, another agent who has 150 players and has been in the business for 30 years? And so, you know, I'm always focusing on ways to set myself apart. That's it. That's the 500th episode. Here are my notes. Find ways to set yourself apart. Be your own best advocate. Be more than a fan. Learn to sell. Learn to write. Take advantage of your golden time before you turn 30. Take on the world. Don't be afraid. Hire and empower minorities. And most importantly, from Lee Steinberg, don't be a dick. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Thanks for listening, everybody. Let's keep this going, shall we? 